Welcome to Vox Vomitus, also known as Word Vomit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Vox Vomitus. I am your host, Jennifer Ann Gordon, the award-winning author of Beautiful, Frightening, and Silent, as well as the Hotel series. I am joined today, as always, by my Vox Vomitus vixens, Trisha Ridinger-McKee, author of the Beyond series, as well as tomorrow, uh, she has a book birthday for Through the Motions, the first of the Josie series. So happy early book birthday to Trisha. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we also have the lovely Alison Martine with us, author of the Bourbon books, hence why she's already sipping her bourbon. That is my excuse. <laughs> any excuse, any excuse for the love of bourbon. We are joined today by an award-winning author, a famous actor, a uh, <laughs> British spy. See, I'm just going to make things up. Yeah. Uh, spy. Uh, the voice of Salem on the original Sabrina. Bow down in your glory, Chris. Yes. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but you've also played Hamlet. You've had a career that is... Uh, miles long when you look at your IMDb and read your bios. So thank you for being here. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about you, your work, and uh, yeah, that, this is when we drink. Okay, excellent. Um, well, thank you for the intro. Yes, I've, uh, I've um, had a, a very long, sometimes not so illustrious acting career. I've been all over the world doing it, uh, as you can tell by the accent, starting out in the UK, uh, ending up here. Now I'm on a small Gulf Island. In, it's, it's called the Gulf Islands in British Columbia. So I haven't uh, not a lot of opportunity for acting here these days. Um, but, uh, you know, I still, I still put my hand in, still do some shows. Um, but mainly these days, of course, I'm an author. And uh, actually, there's two, there's two strings to my bow these days. I'm an author, and I'm also an audiobook narrator, which has been a very, very useful thing to have. Uh, you know, that, that the, the word of the day is pivot, right? So this was yes. such a useful pivot I made. I, I thought about it before the dreaded thing happened. Um, and so I started buying equipment and stuff and started getting down to it. But uh, it's been really useful. Um, you have well, you have a great voice, and we always we end up talking about audiobook narrators a lot on this show because we listen to a lot of audible books, um, and we, we talk to a lot of authors and we talk about their process and finding a narrator. Mm. Um, so, what is your setup like? Is it in like a crazy closet where you just go <laughs> with your warm tea? And yeah, it's uh, well, it's. Um... I'm just about to leave the one space, actually. But for the last two years, I've been basically inside a duvet fort. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, that, that's what it is. You just create duvets everywhere. Lots of soft furnishings. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, that dampens all the extraneous noise. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's good. And I just set to and get the books done. And it's, um, it, it's interesting. It's very interesting to me. Uh, partly because I'm not a particularly tech person. But I learned the tech required for this, and I found a great system called Hindenburg, actually, a Danish recording system. And it's really forgiving. And, um, yeah, it's great. It's great. Very I'm just cracking up because you basically have now perfected the pillow fort, but for yes. grown-ups, and made it a professional thing. 
that you're like, I'm a professional pillow board builder. It's with duvets. (laughs) Do you you have to take the duvet fort down when you're done or does the duvet fort just live in its own space? The duvet fort's just lived there for two years. I'm just moving out of that space. So I'm going to have to uh, recreate another, but it'll it'll just be another duvet fort somewhere. (laughs) More duvets everywhere you go. I love it. Yeah. So, I feel like um, that could make you an Instagram celebrity if you just started uh, selfies well, in the duvet fort. Uh, from the duvet fort, yeah. Yes. Maybe I can do that. Film do that. little like TikTok videos live from the duvet fort. Uh, yes. mm, see? You are. You are. I, need to, I need to get on board all these uh, newfangled things, definitely. <laughs> um, so, so, but, uh, you know, that, that's been a, a late, relatively late switch. Um, you know, having been a, an actor for so long, about 20 odd years, well, actually slightly longer ago, I, I always wanted to write, you know, ever since I was a teenager, I wanted to write and, and did write, but little bits and pieces and, you know, would be full of enthusiasm for a project and then, you know, realize quickly that, uh, that after a few hours of enthusiasm, it wasn't like my great heroes writer, you know, and so I'm, I better, I obviously haven't got the talent, so I better stop. And this is something I now teach. I teach, I teach writing a lot now. And the main thing I teach is process, is understanding the separate stages of the process. And um, so I, I, uh, I, I didn't understand that to begin with, but I entered a, a playwriting competition. It was actually a 24-hour playwriting competition. You had to go into a room for 24 hours. In those days, you actually had to go. And uh, I, I wrote this, this actually it ended up being a two-act drama, of, uh, ripped from the, the, the headlines of my recent tragic love life. And um, I uh, uh, and I, I thought all I wanted to do was finish something, and I did. I finished it, and then submitted it, and thought no more of it. And then two days later, I found that I'd won the whole competition, which means they the, a they gave me money, five hundred bucks. Yes. Bloody hell, I'm a professional writer. And, <laughs> and then b they um, they gave me a production the following year. So because theatre, you know, was something I obviously understood, um, plays seemed like a a reasonable thing to be writing. You know, I likened it later to a novel is a mountain and a, and a play is a hill. You know? um, <laughs> and I understood, I understood about the, that theatre process. So I wrote two more plays, but I always wanted to write uh, fiction, particularly historical fiction. Um, that's, where I, that's where I lived as a child and teenager and grew up just adoring the, the, the genre. And um, I had this, I, I'd had this idea for my first novel, but of course I thought, well, it's an amazing idea about the, the man who killed Anne Boleyn. I don't know if you know much about her. She's the second wife of Henry VIII, and he was very kind to his soon-to-be ex-wife. He brought a, a French swordsman over from France to do the deed because it was the much cleaner way of killing charming fellow Henry. Um, and um, anyway, I, I, I had this idea about you know what happened next, and so I, uh, I, 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 I made the first sort of not mistake exactly, but I, um, I something that I, I don't have never done since, which is. I thought, well, I've obviously got to research everything about this before I start writing. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, um, you know, I read book after book, and I, I say things like to myself, well, well, if ever I do write that book, which I probably won't, but if ever I do, it's obviously going to have a battle at sea between slave gangs, obviously. So I read a whole book about slave gangs. <laughs> it's going to have a black mass in an archbishop's dungeon in medieval Siena. And I go, oh, I'll read about that. And gradually, over the years, I mean, literally took years, um, I, uh, I, I'd acquired all this knowledge. And then finally, I, you know, sort of six, seven years later, I was back in living in England by then, because the first sort of writing career had happened in Canada. 
uh, I, uh, I was staying in a country cottage and I found this book on mercenaries, which I thought, well, if ever I write this book, it'll have the, most of the characters will be mercenaries or former mercenaries. And um, I started reading the book and I thought, this is ridiculous. I've just got to start writing this book. So I started writing it, wrote it really fast because it was all there. You know, 95% of what I'd researched was actually not useful. Um, <laughs> but the useful bit was very useful. And uh, I wrote it in 10 months, submitted it to a, a, one of the biggest agencies in the world, Curtis Brown in London. They took me on straight away and had it sold in two months to Orion, who are one of the top um, um, publishing houses in the UK, part of Hachette. And uh, and that was it. Not only did they give me a one book deal, they gave me a two book deal. So I, I suddenly had a you know commission to write another book, and uh, and then they liked those two quite a lot. French Executioner did very well, actually. It's it's still a bit of a cult novel. I'm going to reissue it soon because it's uh, it's absolutely mad. It's it's not really historical fiction. It's more historical fantasy because the ghost of Anne Boleyn keeps popping up. Love uh, it. And, uh, oh. and, uh, <laughs> oh my. God. I'm there. I'm there. You yeah. have me at Ghost of Anne Boleyn. Yes. <laughs> well, the, the premise being that on the eve of her ex execution, she begs him to take not only her head, but her six-fingered hand, because she had oh, six fingers. Yes. Hand. Uh, uh, and, um, and get rid of it, because it's going to be the mark of the witch, and it's going to be used against her child, and it's going to be, you know, uh, she's been used and exploited enough, no matter. So he agrees to do it, and, and then buried at a crossroads in France by the next full moon. Which is and of course, wackiness ensues from there. <laughs> yes. oh, lots of wackiness. Lots of wackiness because he, um, the, the novel opens with him, the uh, executioner, Jean Rambeau, strung up in one of those gibbet cages. You know those Yes, cages yes. I only know it from Willow, sorry. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Velcro still counts. There. Um, and the archbishop. Not historical fiction. All right. And then the Archbishop of Siena rides cackling off into the night with the hand, leaving Jean to die. But of course, he's the hero and he doesn't die and he goes after. And he, he has to tell a story to the gibbet keeper to get out of it. He tells the story of why he took Anne Boleyn's hand. And anyway, that, and it, become, it becomes this mad sort of chase. Uh, you know, I, I look back at it now because people still love that book. And, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm aware that it's a really fun novel. I'm also aware that I've become a lot better writer in the 20-year-old <laughs> novels. Um, you know, it, it's really structurally, it's a bit odd because it's a series of exciting incidents. You know, <laughs> it's all those things I'd read about battle at sea between slave guns, which you've done in the Palio. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, but that that began the career. And then, um, yeah, here we are, 20, 21 novels later. Gosh. Wow. Wow. Do you um, find. So, I went to school for theater. Wow. And and I, I did, um, you know, I was an actor for, you know, five or six years before life took a different turn. And I decided I'm going to be a painter. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a dancer. And I've been all of those things. But like you, I always wanted to write. Um, but I did theater for so long that I always, when I develop a character that I'm writing, I still develop it in the same way that I would be doing it if I was on stage do you find that you have a similar um kind of process with your character development that an actor does or um, is it completely different for you it's not completely different it's 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 very similar actually um but it's um but like like if you were rehearsing a play you know and you had a reasonably long rehearsal process you explore the character and get yeah. to know the character uh, I I do that. That's how I write my novels. You know, I, I will I will maybe have a 
you know, more or less idea of the plot, more or less. It doesn't necessarily have to be there. I never do an, I never outline to, to begin with. Good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What, yeah, you know, cause I like to, I don't like my uh, characters to be restrained by a plot. You know, eventually the plot and the character are going to, I, my favorite word in writing is oscillation. They're going to oscillate back and forth between mm-hmm. beneath the plot, the drive of the character. Um, in historical fiction case, of course, the, uh, the history of the, of the subjects you're writing about. So I've written some huge subjects like Siege of Constantinople or, or Vlad, which is my most successful book, I'm sure. It's, uh, about, it's the true history of Dracula. But not the vampire. See, so so that is immensely complicated history. But that is going to give you a certain amount of structure. But so I just I just um, plow on through, and I get to know the characters as I'm writing. And I, I you know, like Jennifer with with acting, you'll remember this. It's it's about uh, characters in action, it's revealing yes. themselves through what they do. You know, and what they say is what they do sometimes as well. It doesn't necessarily mean they're telling the truth. Um, and um, and so I, uh, I, I develop the characters that way. And then at the end of the first draft, I've got a pretty clear idea who they are. And that's when I do an outline for the first time. And I, I write down the chapters and I write down the action and I write down some notes. And I think, well, if that happen, happens in chapter seven, then I've got to go back and plant that in chapter one. And blah. But that's the only time I actually start to coherently uh, put it all down. Because by then, and then the characters are going to be... Like, I'll give you an example. Um... Uh, I wrote a novel called Plague, which would you believe is doing quite well at the moment? It's a, uh, it's a, um, it's a, uh, one of the few people out there going, you know, this pandemic has really been pretty, pretty good for my career. Yeah. Oh no. Listen, there's, there's many people who it's the last thing they want to read. And there's other people who it's, they want to look at the history and know that we're not alone or, you know, we went through other. We went through similar stuff. Plague is a religious fundamentalist serial killer story set during the Great Plague of London, sixteen sixty-five. And um, uh, I wrote the first draft of that, and and there's sort of three protagonists in it. The main one, I suppose, being Captain Coke, who's a highwayman, uh, severely traumatized by the English Civil War, um, very closed off, um, and and gets falsely accused of these. Um, these uh, ritual murders because he's, he's robbing, he, he robs a carriage, which, you know, he'd seen the people not 10 minutes before alive and well in a pub. And then he goes out to rob them and he opens the door and they have been slaughtered, not just, not just killed. They've been slaughtered. And, um, and so I, I wrote that whole first draft and, and, um, and it's, uh, I got to the end of it and I read it through again. And I thought, yeah, Coke is, I mean, I love Coke. But he's very closed off. We need something else, and I so I came up with uh, with the sidekick, which of course is the great device for all uh, writing. You know, it's one of my main things that I teach: bringing the sidekick. And so, so I I, I found this boy, uh, this what would be called the less politically correct times, an idiot child. Uh, he uh, you know he's, he's he's sort of cross-eyed and teeth all over the place, and he's starving on the streets and 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 freezing to death. And Coke takes him in, and so his, and his name because. Um, up until very recently, I hope I don't get emotional here. My my cat uh, Dickin used to sleep oh, on my bed, yeah. and um, and so he became Dickin. This boy became Dickin, and and Dickin is this great sidekick because he's he might be you know all over the place, but he's not stupid, and he's um, and he uh, he loves his captain. You know, he sleeps at the end of his captain's bed, and um, and he becomes the perfect boy. So that was an example of you know me going back over, and, and so I wrote that in. 
of course, changed the book. And the book, and the book then went on to win best crime novel in Canada. So must have done something wrong. Yay! I know you said a lot of words that I saw. I feel like I saw Trisha swoon when you said serial killer, and then swoon a little bit again when you said highwayman. I just was like, oh, it's okay. I was like, I know you. So, yes. <laughs> Trisha, do you have any questions about serial killers you want to ask Chris? Yeah. Or, do, <laughs> or do you want to ask I, about I, Salem the cat? <laughs> I, I was going there because um, with, with such a strong um, hold in acting, um, you've done so much with that. And now, you know, conquering the writing world, um, it, it's, do you find that when you're doing one, you kind of miss the other? Or do you find that they're connected in a way that, you know, you're using your creativity? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, I, 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 they're, they're always overlapping. You know, if I'm going to be doing a play, it's not like I'm putting a, a book aside for that entire rehearsal performance period. Um, you know, it, and, and of course, as, as you all know, being writers yourself, uh, a novel exists not only on your computer or on the page, it exists in your head all the time. So, so all no matter, the time. All the time. So no matter what, uh, what, how distracted you are or whatever, there's going to be a, a small part of your brain. I often think it's, it's hard for, um, for our loved ones who aren't writers because they don't quite get it. They don't quite get the fact that, that you'll just be sort of going, and they think you're gone, right? But you're actually, yes. but yeah, you're you're in the story somewhere. Yep. And yes. uh, you know, the number of times I get up in the middle of the night and write a sentence down, you know, it's just uh, because something has occurred. Um, there's, actually, there's a funny story. Um, it might have been me, but I'm I'm going to claim it wasn't just because I don't want to. <laughs> but, oh. Um, uh, when when a, a, a young uh, writer and his wife had their first baby, uh, it was about. Uh, it's three in the morning and the baby is in the full on tearing jags every night and they're both exhausted and uh, this baby starts crying and the wife waits it out and waits it out and then leans over and jabs the husband in the, in the side and says, it's your turn. And the husband says, Shh, I'm working. Yes. <laughs> We've all yep. been there. Whether yes. it's a baby or something. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I think I just did that the other day. My, you know, my lovely husband was trying to have a conversation with me and I went, I'm writing, but I was uh, just, I was just sitting, I was just sitting there doing nothing. Yeah. I, my I daughter even... says that. Yeah. She'll say, she'll tell her friends, they'll tell me something and I'm just looking and she's like, she's writing. She's uh, just ignore her. <laughs> you, have to, you have to be committed to that world as well. You know, that's the thing. it's yeah. selfish. Well, and Chris, I wanted to ask about the book that you just completed. I, I got to read the art copy of One London Day. Well, I started it, but didn't finish. I'm very excited because you are, there's probably only four people on the planet who have read that book. And you're the four. Am I number five? A king. You're probably four or five, yeah. yeah. You're four or five. I, I, I will you and I are 5.5 5 and 5.7. 5. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted I to actually finish it, but... You're, you're talking about these characters and I, I was trying to describe it and going through, well, what is it like? And things I was coming up with were things along the lines of pulp fiction, where you've got these different storylines yes. and these people's lives who are splicing together at these moments that are pivotal. But mm -hmm. I was hearing how you're saying, okay, so this other book that had one main character and then you brought in another character, what was the process like to even approach something where you've got kind of a smorgasbord of a cast? Yeah. Like, day how well, did that start 
Interesting you asked that. Um, one London day is, is, um, is so different from my normal output, right? Uh, I, I realized uh, a long time ago as an actor, and I've also realized it as a writer, that I get really bored acting the same part or writing the same book. You know, I'm just not interested. And uh, I think both my careers, act, I mean, I did all right. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But um, both my careers might have gone better if I'd played the one thing. Like, you know, I was, when I started out in England, I was the, the quintessential English private school boy, you know, a bit like that, talking like this and blah, 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 and played some nice roles in that ilk. And then I got cast out of the blue as a Jewish gladiator who becomes Rome's top gladiator in uh, this biblical Roman epic called Anno Domini. And, and suddenly I'm darkened, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm totally physical and there's not a hint of the English public school. And it's the same with books for me. I, uh, I'm not interested in writing the same book over and over. You know, if, if I, like I did start writing an 18th century spy series, Jack Absolute, I loved him. I could have happily written more of him. But, you know, after three of them, uh, I suddenly made a, a, a pivot, a choice to, to start writing. And it was actually my made the mistake of getting drunk with my editor in London. And he was the one who suggested Vlad as a subject. And I thought, oh, bloody hell, okay. And I, I, I tackled it. But it was, um, so... So to do something as radically different as One London Day, you know, is it a risk? I don't know. I, I wanted to write the book. I wanted to write it for lots of reasons. One is that it's, it's, it's where I grew up, that whole North London milieu. I understand it. I don't live there anymore. I love London. I write a lot about London. Uh, it is my city. Um, Have you gone I, back and found that the gastropub has gone vegan? <laughs> yes. That, <laughs> that is true. That is true. I couldn't believe that. I thought, well, that's going on. No. Yeah. Yeah, that's going on. No steak and kidney pie. What? Yeah, I know, right. Forget it. Yeah, that's right. No, I, uh, I, I was thrilled when that happened because it's, it, you know, and that's where you snap, you, you pick up little things like that and they become a catalyst. So, I mean, I have written multi-narrator books before, um, uh, particularly um, a place called Armageddon, my, my novel about the fall of Constantinople. I wrote it on both sides of the wall, Muslim and Christian, king and peasant, you know. Um, but uh, this was different because, as you say, it was, um, I like the idea of the pulp, I like the pulp fiction reference, by, by the way, I think that's really accurate, um, that these, you know, I'm interested in these worlds that collide with each other and then, and then, um, and then for for something for some reason it goes horribly wrong, <laughs> and um, so I, uh, I I was really interested in that rather than your straight narrative. I mean, I got you know I, I'm 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 publishing um, one London Day myself because I got rejected gloriously. I got the the best rejection letters from every crime editor in London going, "Wow, this is amazing! This is so well written. It's a noir. It's blah blah blah." I just don't know what it is. You know, how do they sell it to marketing? When yeah. There's yeah. And, and that's something that you, you're really hitting the nail on the head where if an editor or the publicist doesn't know what to do with it, they're kind of at a loss. And it doesn't matter how good it is or even the reputation of the author. They go, I, I don't know what to do with it. And I, I loved that it wasn't linear. And I know one of the books that I've written isn't linear either. And the book I'm writing now is linear because I'd like this one to sell. Uh-huh. And that's exactly <laughs> it because that whole aspect I love a lot a nonlinear storyline, and I think most readers are smart enough to follow it if you make it clear what's happening. I never got confused reading what you wrote. It was completely understandable, but I'm sure some people are going to go, 
Well, these poor readers, they won't understand because look, the date's right on there. It's not that hard to find. You can find where we are in the storyline. But to start with having something happen, an inciting incident, and then pull back, and then pull back more. So you're seeing behind the curtain further and further. I hadn't seen that done before, and it was glorious. Right. And I've, I've seen it on a show, but I've never read that. I've never read that kind of linearity or that kind of drawing back the camera further and further from that starting point and to see how we got there. Thank you. Well, that's great to hear because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I remain um, uh, uncertain how it will be received because there will be all those people who want to go, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's not this and it's not that. And it, rather than reading it for what it is, you right. know, I'm, I'm it goes back to being an actor, of course, as well, but I'm most interested in character, yeah. you know, in any book, you know, it's why we read, let's face it, we get into the characters. I mean, yes, we want a cracking plot and blah, adventures and dastardly villains and all that, but we really want, I, I, I'm very interested in human frailty. You know, the idea, the idea that a man, like Joseph Severin, who's sort of the core of the novel, could, yes. you know, who's absolutely straight. You know, he's so straight. He's had his life, his life is straight now. He had a bit of a wild youth. But, you know, and, and the whole life gets turned upside down by the glimpse of a young woman's back. In the mm -hmm. you know, and and I think that's, um, that to me is, you know, the, the uh, it's happened the odd time in my life. You know, something just entirely left field comes along and just changes your world. And and so and then, you know, it's that daisy chain of characters, that those repercussions. And um yeah. Well and the theater reference, and this is something I'd share with Jen, was the blue room. There's something of the blue room in there as well. Now, obviously, since you were writing this as a novel and not as a cast for two actors, five actors, however many, and sometimes they do end up that there's more than two on a stage at a time. So you can't exactly do it with a two person cast, but the similar idea where you've got these people who seeing their lives link up and link up and link up and people, one exits and the next one comes in and you see how they interconnect in ways that you would never expect. Yeah. It's, it was, it was beautiful. So I'd say Pulp Fiction meets Blue Room. There's your pitch. Fantastic. I should, grab, <laughs> yeah. I should, grab it. I've got, I've got Blue Room up here. Thank <laughs> you, really. One of my favorites. Um, Blue Room is of course, uh, uh, drawn itself. It's an adaptation of an Arthur Schnitzler play called La Ronde. Exactly. It's French, isn't it? Uh, Viennese, actually. Is Viennese? Viennese, yeah. Schnitzler was a Viennese writer. Very fa fascinating man. That, that extraordinary period, just from 1900 before the war, destroyed their whole world. Um, uh, so, but he wrote this scurrilous play. Because all about, you know, this person has sex with this person. It's all sex. It's sex. sex. Mm -hmm. It's sex. a daisy scene of sex, exactly. That's that's what it is. Yeah. I exactly. did scene studies from that my my senior <laughs> oh. year in school. Now, see, I I a very a very uncomfortable college production of that because I'm looking at kids who I'm going, you are not old. I ooh that I don't want to see any. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, no. So and Nicole Nicole Kidman famously did it in London. Yes. yes. And I, yes. I think it was after she had done that that this college production thought, ooh, this is all the rage now. And I just thought, I am glad I'm not any of your parents. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so, Chris, do you have a favorite role you've ever performed? Yeah. Is it Salem the Cat? <laughs> That's so, Jen's favorite role of yours. Just, yes, yes. No, I was a part of this as the cat. <laughs> I did. I wanted to ask that, but Salem was obviously a, a, a pivotal moment in my career. Though it was, a, it literally boiled down to four hours in a studio in Vancouver 
with a director on a phone patch in uh, Los Angeles, um, with him, <laughs> him going through the script with me and, and, and giving me notes. And I just stood at a microphone for four hours and put this cat down. Uh, so delightful though it was, and, and though it's quite the credit, because people like you, oh my God, you're an original Salem, um, is, uh, it's, um, it, 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 wasn't, it didn't last that long. I mean, I've, I've, I've played a number of amazing roles. I've been really blessed. Um, the, um, the, the one in, uh, the one on, on, particularly on television that I loved was, um, was playing Caleb in Anna Domino. I mean, that was, that took me to Tunisia for 10 months. Um, you know, I'm, I've always been quite a physical, uh, guy, uh, particularly, um, you know, I fell in love with the swords and weaponry. You got to be a gladiator. I think I would rather be a gladiator for 10 months than a cat for four hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it was amazing. And I, I, I did things, you know, and I'm a history, history nut, right? So I actually filmed in a real Coliseum in North Africa. We filmed where they fought, you know, it was weird, but it was also, uh, exciting. Um, and, um, so there was that and that, and that also, I mean, for better or worse, that, that hijacked my career and took me to Hollywood for a couple of years. Uh, and so, you know, at, at which every actor wants to do, every actor needs to seize that opportunity. It didn't work out the way I wanted it to in the end, which was fine. So I went back to England and back into theater. Um, but, but speaking of, of course, the, the role that changed my life. I mean, that, that changed my sort of career, Caleb. Um, but the role that changed my life was Hamlet. That, I was wondering. That's what I wanted you to say. <laughs> like, talk to me about Hamlet. <laughs> uh, playing Hamlet, playing Hamlet um, yeah, it changed everything. It was a time in my life when I was a bit lost, I think. Um, and... Um, my dad had died just a few years before, um, so to be doing a play about fathers and sons was, and especially as the actor who played my father, it kind of had my father's eyes as well, which was interesting. Mm. So, so, and and I, I discovered quite rapidly that Hamlet is the is the sort of ultimate straight role. You know, whoever is whoever your Hamlet is, it's you basically. And you stay, it's not that I do a lot of method acting and using my own past that much. But you, 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 you know, you, you work with what you have. Um, uh, the other thing about it was that it was, um, I, it was a peculiar circumstance and I did it because the, um, the production, uh, I, I was the, what's called the alternate Hamlet. So the, the main actor in this production didn't want to play Hamlet on matinees. The fool, the fool. So, so the director brought me in. Which meant that uh, was was great in one sense. I got to play Hamlet, but not so good because all the things that I was promised in terms of a, you know, the odd rehearsal, all went. I didn't. I didn't get to rehearse. So I I became this, and I've done this. I did this with Caleb as well. Uh, you know, when a when a role demands a sort of physical commitment. Uh, so I, I you know like I I like a, I like the odd pints and stuff. But I gave up drinking. I started. Uh, I started um, well like upped my running. I started going to the gym a lot because I was in Calgary. It was freezing in the winter. So I used to go to the gym. I rode the bike to Olympian level. You know, I was so fit. But I was, it, And it was just me and the words. Words, 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 all the time. And and um, it was extraordinary experience too because I didn't, as I said, I didn't really have a director. So uh, all I had were the words. And um, and and that's, that's what it's about. Uh, Hamlet is words. Yeah. Uh, sounds a bit odd to say, but it is, and um, and so that, and it not only did it 
It was an extraordinary experience to play it, but it also philosophically changed my life in terms of uh, that uh, that belief in what one can or can't do and how much one control one has and what is action and what is just being. And, um, you know, and I go back to it all the time. Uh, and it, uh, it really does, uh, it, uh, yeah, it, it colors my life on, a, on an almost daily basis. So. Yeah, that was really beautiful what you just said. What is action and what it's just being. Mm-hmm. I just can't even imagine, though, having to step into a role where everyone else has been rehearsing with someone that isn't you, but then doing that on a regular basis where it's matinees, it's me, but it's somebody else in the evening and then having to react to you and not the other man. Well, that's the thing. And that's the joy of, <coughs> of live theater. Yes. You know, when I walked out on that stage the first time, having had barely a dress rehearsal, I mean, it wasn't even a proper one. And I walked out there the first time and I started hyperventilating. I was terrified. Never in my life have I thought, this is the moment they come and take me away in a white. <laughs> you know, I was so, so scared. Um, and I started, I, I couldn't breathe properly. And I was sort of, breathing. and then I thought, Listen, you know, because I thought this is it, and then I thought, no, no, listen, listen, what's he saying? 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 And then, as soon as he finished talking, I started talking, and it was like stepping onto a roller coaster. And it, and literally, I stepped off three and a half hours later. On the so I also just can't believe that they would have cast somebody who just said, "I don't do matinees." Is that is that common, or was that kind of just a weird thing? Was this guy just no, bowing not, in his feet? I I wouldn't have said it was common. It's not uncommon. Hmm. Because I've seen a lot of theater in matinees because poor. And so I've seen a lot of the matinees instead of the lead actors. And you get all the inserts that say instead of, and you get everybody instead of the leads. I just thought I always was going on bad days, but maybe that's just standard that you're getting someone else for the matinees. It's not standard. No, it really does vary. But, uh, but it was, thank God he did. Thank God he did. But here's a funny story about that, though. The, the production had a lot of problems, which is one of the reasons they, the director didn't direct me. Um, and in the preview week, he cut the entire first scene, which is a, like painting a mustache on the Mona Lisa, I think. But um, it's um, uh, and, and part of the problem was it was running too long. The whole thing was running really long. And part of the problem was and I'm not going to mention the other actor because I don't want a bad mouth. And he's a perfectly nice guy, but he didn't really grasp the verse. And instead of just you know, Hamlet tells you how to play Hamlet. Speak the speech as I pronounced it to you trippingly on the tongue. It doesn't it doesn't require you. Shakespeare doesn't require you to hang around and think about saying something and then saying it. What Shakespeare <laughs> requires you to do is to say it. Say the words, guys. Say the words. You know, yeah, um, say the words. And so when, when I I love that. Sorry. So when I when I uh, did it, I came off and I, I thought the um the uh the tech crew were looking quite we were all friends of mine anyway. Yeah, well done, I was like, oh thanks, yeah, no, 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 really well done. We're off the pub. And I went, what? <laughs> I took se- I took 17 minutes off the show. Oh, wow. Okay. And I can't That's imagine that they were noticing it was running long and that nobody considered the pacing of the speeches or this, this downtime between. So if there's that lag, rather than, oh, let's cut a scene. Because I didn't think you were even allowed to do that with Shakespeare. Like someone would come out. Oh, and you can. Oh, no. no. <laughs> no. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, like the Bible. That's you can. Pure you sacrilege. Can. <laughs> that's why it's so rare to see things like Henry V and it's full. Like, well, that, they'll, they'll split that up over a couple yeah. days. But. That's right. That's right. So anyway, but it was, it was, it was an amazing, amazing time, amazing opportunity. 
And of course, it's factored in. I mean, I ended up writing a novel called Shakespeare's Rebel, which is about William Shakespeare's fight choreographer at the time that Will is writing Hamlet. And so I was trying to derive, you know, further explore that world of, of, you know, why Hamlet then? Why Hamlet in 1600, basically? Um, and what was going on? And so I, I looked, I, uh, and my, my main actor, my protagonist in that is called John Lawley. And he's a brilliant swordsman, not a bad actor, but a raging drunk. And so he's, he's, he keeps getting booted out of the Lord Chamberlain then. He's trying to reform, and but he gets caught up in the Earl of Essex's rebellion, which is the last great rebellion against Elizabeth. And, um, and so it's a, it's a political, theatrical family, fathers and sons again, um, love story, um, sword fighting story. You know, it's, uh, Why is this not a movie? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, Shakespeare in love. I would rather see Shakespeare with the fight choreography and the Absolutely. rebellion and all that. That I volunteer. Yeah, like good. Well, get, get the word out there. Get the word out. <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll spread that. We'll spread the rumor that it's it's somebody's already considering it, and then people will go, "Oh, well, maybe I should consider doing that." Yeah, rumors. Yeah. I think we've got the same publicist. Let's have him put that out there into the world. Chris. Get him on it. <laughs> Well, and I wanted to... Oh, go ahead, John. Oh, no. I was just going to say, um, why the unicorn tapestries in the cloisters? What What about that? Were you a child when you developed a fascination for these tapestries? No. No, what, what happened was I... Um, I uh, I was trying to figure out what to write next. My Knopf, <laughs> my editor in Knopf, at Knopf in New York, I'd written three young adult sort of earth magic books sort of the runestone saga. And she got in touch and said, yeah, I want another book from you. And I'd kind of done my, I hadn't thought of ever writing fantasy. And um, uh, I went, I don't know. And she said, no, 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 we'll, we'll give you a contract. And, went, mm-hmm. and okay. so I was sitting there in my office going, what am I going to write about? What am I going to write? What am I, why do I have a unicorn? Do I do. So can you see yeah. that? Uh, I don't know how many, I can, oh, there you go. I can see it. I'm not wearing my glasses. I can't see it. <laughs> I'm Jen seeing eye dogs. So yes, Jen, it's a unicorn ring. It's a unicorn. I've read about the unicorn it's, ring. It happens to be my family crest. Um, my this is my dad's ring. Uh, I got it when he passed. Um, and uh, I just I just started wondering about what what a unicorn meant. You know what it literally meant. Why do I have this symbol on? I kept, I've worn this symbol on my person since I was 21 years old. What does that mean? So I started researching that one of the first things that came up, well, apart from, um, you know, the fact that it's unconquerable except by a maiden. I thought maidens, unicorns, good combo. And then I also, then I found the the, uh, the unicorn tapestries in New York. Have, have you guys ever seen them? Yes. That's I've why seen I them not in, not in person and they're gorgeous, oh. but I would love to get to see them. Oh, they physically. are amazing. And they blew my mind. And the whole idea of weaving kind of as a metaphor for writing as well. And, um, and, and the great thing is that there, no one knows who made them, when they were made, where they were made. They, all they know is they were really expensive, but, uh, but there was this whole mystery around them. And so I came up with this idea that it was in fact my protagonist, Elaine, her ancestor was the weaver who wrote them. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the world wrote them, and um, and uh, and so I, um, I I I I came up with this idea that it was actually the uh, the weaver had woven a doorway. 
for the unicorn to pass back from our world where all the beasts used to live until it got too hot. And then they all moved back to Goloth, the land of the fabulous beast. And uh, Moonsville, the uh, the unicorn, um, had had the, the weaver's daughter, the original weaver's daughter, 500 years before, Alice Elaine, had... Um, had uh, promised that if he ever need, really needed her, her or her descendants would come. And so he really needs her. And so he summons her through. But of course, this is present-day Manhattan girl. You know, she's like, what the hell do I know about you? What do I know about you? Manticores, except they're trying to eat me now. And this sort of so, um, so that that became, so it became like the, the wardrobe in Narnia, you know, how yeah. you go to, from one world to the other. And um, yeah, and it just spooled out from there. Uh, I had a blast writing it. It's it's because uh, that was the first time I'd really. I mean, even though we crossed back and forth between the worlds, that was the first time I'd uh, really dabbled in the purely fantastical. You know, the fantastic, fantastic beasts, basically. But there's still a bit of history there when you're dealing with the lineage and all those same themes. And and kudos, I, I heard you slip in the word "spool back." Nice tapestry reference. I did notice. Ah, yeah, was- <laughs> absolutely. Um. I hate to cut us off, but we are out of time. Aww. Chris, you were delightful. And uh, I'm proud of myself that I didn't make you do the Salem voice. Uh-huh. I don't think I can remember what it's like, actually. So, uh, I know. Well, then you'll have to come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, well, that was so bitchy of me. I'm like, well, then you'll have to come back. Uh, We'd like you to come back, but like you're you still come. not going to be required to be Salem, the little black cat. You don't have to do it the whole time, but I could give you screeds of Hamlet, but Salem is kind of gone. <laughs> yeah, it's it's understandable. Um, yeah. Thank you, Chris, for being here. Uh, thank you, everybody who is watching live or watching on the replay. Please check out Chris's website and all of his work. Thank you to my Vox Vomitus Vixens, as always. Thank you to Roman Seraton, our producer, and thank you to Pam Stack, our executive producer. Uh, stay tuned for next week. We have Jennifer McMahon, New York Times number one bestselling author, and she is here uh, the day after her new book is released, The Drowning Kind, which I started last night, and it's fantastic. Uh, so that will be next week. Uh, until then, uh, we will see you all later. This has been a copywritten podcast for the Global Authors on the Air Network. And once again, Trisha, happy book birthday tomorrow. Thank you. See you next week. Waving.